Turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah. And while we do that, I just want to say it's good to be back. Uh, it's the longest I've been away <laughs> uh, since I've been here. It was obviously not what I thought. And so it's, it's good to, to be back in the pulpit. It's good to be back to normal. I'm thankful for uh, the men who, who stepped in, uh, both those who planned to step in and then those who <laughs> did so unexpectedly at the last minute. I'm very, very grateful for those who preached the word. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1. This is God's word. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to your word for us, that although the grass withers and the flower fades, your word stands forever. It accomplishes all of its intended purposes. And so we humbly come before you today and ask that you, through your spirit, might give us ears to hear and understand all that your word is for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, some have joked with me about why Jeremiah, especially after Revelation. Um, and I just have to say, I, I don't know. I mean, I had reasons, I had thoughts, I prayed through this. But as we started the book of Revelation, in which I felt the same way when people asked the question, oh, that's a tough book. When I get to the first week of preparation, I thought, what in the world have I done? And this week, I have felt the same way. What in the world? It's such a big, it's the biggest book. This is the longest book in Scripture, by word count. And I have thought and thought, what in the world? Because it's not, it's not like Genesis, you know, or Acts, where you start and you kind of move through a narrative through history, and it follows quite nicely along. It's going to require a little bit more work for us. But we'll talk more about why Jeremiah, not just today, but in the weeks to come, and why I think this will be beneficial to us. There are a number of movies and books that we watch or read where we know the end of the story, especially when it comes to history. One of my favorite movies is one that was, it was a blockbuster, but it got pretty lame reviews because it was considered dull by many. The movie Torah, Torah, Torah. If you've ever seen it, it recounts the attack on Pearl Harbor at the beginning of World War II. And my interest probably in the movie lends itself more to the fact of having been stationed there and just visiting the memorial and knowing the history and so forth before I ever saw the movie. But when I did see the movie, I I knew what was coming. There, There weren't any surprises in the movie. It's like watching the Titanic movie or a documentary. You You aren't surprised by what comes. If you've ever watched a movie or read a book like this, you know what that's like. And Jeremiah, in some ways, is like that. We know from the very beginning, even from the text that we read today, what is to come. In verse 3, we're told the people are carried off into captivity. 
So everything Jeremiah is about to say, everything he's about to tell God's people, it's going to come true. And it's going to come about. They're not going to listen. We know that from the very beginning. Now, if you're the kind of person that likes to flip to the last page or the last chapter of a book to know what happens, don't do it now. You can do it this afternoon. But the last chapter of Jeremiah will tell you all of this, that Jerusalem indeed was ransacked. The temple was burned. The people were carried off into exile by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And so you might think now, okay, you just said it was a difficult book. You just said it was the longest book. And now you've said it's a book we already know the end of the story. And it was written to people who lived in the 6th century B.C. Why are we studying Jeremiah? Well, the first and certainly the easiest answer is found in 2 Timothy 3.16. That all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. It's beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for instruction. That we may be equipped for every good work, found complete. We need God's Word. Indeed, all of God's Word is beneficial to us. And here, although there's exceptions to this, for the most part, we work through books of the Bible. And it's because of this, because all Scripture is for our benefit. And by doing this, we're forced to deal with both the easy text or the the favorite text as well as the more difficult texts and maybe the texts that aren't our favorite. But by doing this, we're able to see and understand the whole counsel of God. So this is a good discipline, not only for me as your pastor, but it's good for all of us to go through even the difficult books. We don't cherry-pick certain passages. I'm not allowed to bring in whatever is the itch in my crawl that week and and kind of beat you up over it or, or use it as a bully pulpit. But I'm forced to wrestle with the next portion in the passage to understand all that God's revealed word is for us. But another reason, and maybe something that's more uh, relevant for us, is the fact that I think Jeremiah is relevant. Uh, I think that there are things in the book of Jeremiah that are timely for us in our own day. There are a number of similarities in the day, from the day of Jeremiah into our own time as well. There were both external threats and internal threats in Judah. And I'll say here at the outset, Jeremiah is in the southern kingdom of Judah. The kingdoms have been divided now for a while. The northern kingdom is called Israel, but I'm going to use that term interchangeably, so don't hold that against me. I'll still say Israel sometimes, and sometimes I'll say Judah, just so you know. Uh, we're talking about the, 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 the Jeremiah's message was primarily to the southern kingdom. But these external threats uh, were from, uh, had been from Assyria. Assyria had been in power. Their power had waned. They had had external threats from Egypt. Egypt went back and forth from being a friend to an enemy. But now it was Babylon. Babylon had secured power. They were the world superpower, the world force. And they were rising both in their political and military power but also bringing their, their religion, their pagan ideologies into the world that they conquered. And so there was this tendency for uh, Israel uh, throughout their history to fight against syncretism of the, the religions that were around them. This was true with Babylon. There were internal threats, though, as well. And the internal threats are many of the same. If you, if you can't really see the connection with the external threat, hopefully we will in the, in the weeks to come. Certainly you can see the connection to the internal threats 
that Israel faced. And it was the same internal threats that they dealt with their whole history, and it's the same internal threats that we face in our day throughout history. These are the same internal threats. It's the challenge of turning the, the true religion, what is righteousness that is by faith, into self-righteousness, works righteousness, finding our confidence in our own behavior, in our own performance, in our own right rightness or right doing of things. John McKay summarizes it this way. They thought that the temple in their midst, with its sacred objects, the number and costliness of their sacrifices, and their possession of God's law were sufficient to ensure their good standing before the Lord. We can identify with these things. Sometimes as Presbyterians, we think that we have it all figured out, that we've got it all right, that we do it right, and that can easily turn into self-righteousness. We see the rise of secularism in our day. And with it, whether you recognize this or not, the rise of paganism. The idea of this anti-God thinking, this opposition to everything that we know and believe is true. And so there are similar external threats in our own day. And what happens often with these kinds of external threats is we respond in fear. And then our lives are dominated by fear, and we become handicapped by fear rather than trusting in the one who is sovereign over all these things. The threats that are internal are the same. We put our hope in our own works, our own righteousness, or we put our hopes in the wrong things. We look to the wrong things for deliverance, whether it's political ideology or even a person in office. And again, we can succumb to our own pride of doing everything right. So we'll see as we move through the book of Jeremiah. There are a number of things that we can relate to and benefit from his prophetic word. And so that brings me up to, up to, to what is the message of Jeremiah? Well, that will unfold. I don't want to try and unpack everything today, but just to give you it in a nutshell, the message of Jeremiah was quite simply a call to repentance. It was a call of correction. It was a warning it wasn't so much about, a lot of times we think about prophecy as revealing new information. There was some, some things that were revealed, but it was mostly a calling to remember, a calling to return, a calling to repent to what God had revealed to them, to his people. But it's more than that, because in the calling to return, there is also instruction and reminder, and I think this is what will become particularly relevant for us. Four things that I would mention here. One that God is the creator and rules sovereignly over all of his creation. We talk a lot about the sovereignty of God in our circles, so much so that I think at times we can forget all that it means for us. But God's sovereignty should bring us incredible peace. Incredible peace. To know that he is in control of all the unexpected things, of all the things that go uh, that get turned upside down. The sins against us, the sins against those we love, God is sovereign over all these things, should bring incredible peace. Jeremiah 10, 12 says, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. The second thing, God demonstrates his gracious love through sovereign election. Jeremiah 31, 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love, Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. 
This is what God says to us. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. And that leads into the third one, that God works through covenant, demonstrating his faithfulness has no end. Again, I think we talk about this and sing about this so much that we forget all that it means for us. That God's faithfulness has no end. We can't comprehend that, quite frankly. I mean, we've never had an experience except that through faith of knowing God. We've never had a person in our life whose faithfulness knew no end. Every one of us have been disappointed by every person we've known in some way or the other. And we have done the same. We've never had an experience like this to know someone except for our God. And so I think this plays into our doubting that his faithfulness has no end. How could God continue to love me after I just did this or thought that or said this? But his faithfulness has no end. He says, For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. Jeremiah 7.22 This was God's heart for his people. Oh, he eventually did get to the sacrifices and to the, the, the guidelines. He understood they needed them. But initially, he outlined it very simply. Just trust and obey me. Walk with me. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. And, of course, we know how it all kind of went down. (laughs) But then in the New Covenant, we see it in its perfection because Jesus accomplishes for us all that we couldn't do ourselves. Fourth, God is the Savior of his people and no one else. I could say God is the Savior of his people and no one or no thing else. Nothing else. Nothing else is our Savior. Jeremiah 33, 15, In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. And this is our hope. This is where our hope stands. The Lord is our righteousness. Not us, not our good works, not our efforts. Not the world around us, not any other thing that rises up and says, I will save you. The Lord is our righteousness. That righteous branch did spring up. He lived and walked among us. He laid his life down for us. And he was raised and now reigns forever. So when we read Jeremiah, or when we survey our own world, our own context, when we look around, at times we get discouraged and we feel the weight of sin's presence and curse. But we are never hopeless because the righteous one has accomplished all that was foretold. And the promise is ours that God speaks to Jeremiah in chapter 32. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. That is the promise given to us. That God has said, I will not turn away from doing good to you. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? Do you comprehend it? I don't at times. I miss it. I, I, I fail to, to, to really grasp this as I go through my day when bad things happen. Or I imagine all the bad things that could happen, that haven't happened. I forget God's promise to me that he will do good. 
So beginning then in verse 1, here's an introduction, provides some biographical background information on Jeremiah, the current situation in Judah. We'll go quickly through this. The phrase, the words of Jeremiah, uh, tell us who the author is right from the beginning. This is not a book that has been attributed to someone. This is a book that was spoken, given by God, words given to Jeremiah. We'll be introduced to Baruch, who was his scribe or secretary, the one who wrote probably most of the words. So that's why I'm avoiding saying that he wrote all of this. It's likely that his scribe did But these are the words of Jeremiah. He is the son of Hilkiah, a priest in this village, Anathoth, which was about three miles north of Jerusalem, in the region that had been allocated to the tribe of Benjamin. Now, there was another Hilkiah. And if you read some of the surrounding histories in Kings and Chronicles about this same time, you'll discover that Hilkiah, this other Hilkiah, was uh, the high priest in Jerusalem. And so there are those who have thought this was the same person. Uh, But there are many reasons why I believe it's not the same person, that these were two different men. Uh, As we know that common just in our own day, there are many Johns in the room, many Mikes in the room. There are common names, Hilkiah, Jeremiah. There were many other Jeremiahs in Jeremiah's day as well. So it's, it's not a problem that this was two different people. There are a number of indicators in the book of Jeremiah that his dad was not the high priest, that he did not grow up in Jerusalem, but rather in this small village. That is, Jeremiah was, was a preacher's kid, uh, so to speak, but he grew up in a rural village, uh, not far from the big city. He would have been familiar with Jerusalem. He would have gone to see. He would have understood temple worship. He would have been familiar with that experience. But the 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 brunt of his upbringing would have been that he grew up in a rural setting. He would likely have moved into the role of priest because it was, in a sense, a family business. Sons of priests became priests. It was through the tribe of Levi that the priests came, and so that would have been the norm. But there is no indication that Jeremiah ever became a priest. Uh, nothing in his, uh, in his book or in any of the other history uh, we, we look, for example, at when he was called to be a prophet. He was called when he describes himself as a youth, and the word that's used there typically describes uh, someone under the age of 20. And so that would have been the age 20 was when a priest would have entered into that duty, so it's likely he never stepped into that role. But he would have been the beneficiary of his dad being a priest. He would have witnessed the priestly role and the priestly duties. We can't be certain of this. Uh, because we do understand there were many priests who were unfaithful, who had given up their duties, and Jeremiah speaks out against such in his prophecy. But there are a number of indications that seem that either his dad was faithful and he witnessed that, or God preserved Jeremiah through whatever he experienced in his home life. And that is a beautiful reminder to us as parents. And I want to stop here and say this to parents, that this is a moment to consider the life of Jeremiah. Our tendency is to put, to put our hope and our confidence in either our parenting successes or to writhe in pity of our parenting failures. We tend to swing to one pole or the other. We don't do a very good job of trusting God with our children. But Jeremiah is a reminder of where we are to put our hope, that we are to hope in the God of Jeremiah, in our God, in the one who is the Redeemer, who writes the stories of our lives and that of our children. I could almost guarantee that everyone who is a parent 
will at some point be surprised and say something to the effect of, this is not the way I thought it was going to be, or this is not the way I thought it would turn out. Many of you will be more than surprised. You'll be disappointed. You'll be heartbroken, and you'll be crushed by what you witness happens to your children or what you see your children choose to do. But the story is not over. Just as God raised up Jeremiah from this lowly place and preserved him through whatever his experience was, just as he promised in the message of Jeremiah to restore the people from the ashes, to bring the remnant out, so the stories of our children are yet to be told. Don't despair of your mistakes as a parent. And don't become prideful of what you perceive as successes, but rather pray for your children and trust God to do all that he intends. He is the God who turns sorrows into gladness, who restores and redeems. Moving on to verse 2, Jeremiah makes the first of many claims that the word of the Lord came to him. This is what makes him a prophet. Now, a prophet is a spokesperson for God, and as we'll see in this book, there were others who claimed to be prophets, who came with different messages than the message Jeremiah had. So how do we know who is telling the truth? Well, Scripture tells us. Deuteronomy 18.22 says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So we know then that Jeremiah is the true prophet because I've already told you, you can flip to the last chapter and see that everything he says comes true in the end. What he foretold came to pass. Verse 2 also tells us the timing of Jeremiah's life. It does this in a typical ancient fashion by naming who was in power or who was ruling at the time. It was Josiah, and it says that it was in his 13th year. You may be familiar with the story of Josiah. He, came to, he was a righteous king. He came to, to the throne at the young age of 8. So this makes him 21, if my math's correct. So if, if Jeremiah then came as a youth to be called as a prophet in his teenage years, then he's just a few years younger than Josiah. Now, I would point out that Josiah was righteous, but he was righteous as any of us are righteous by faith. God so worked in his young life to soften his heart, to lead him to faith, to then direct him to restore proper worship, and ultimately to the, to the rediscovery, in a sense, the discovery of the scrolls in the temple. Now, it was a single scroll, and so there's some discussion. Was that scroll the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, or was it just one book? It's, possibly that it was, it's possible that it was just one book, the book of Deuteronomy, which plays a significant role in the book of Jeremiah, as we'll see. But in either sense, Josiah was, was a kind of a reformer. And so Jeremiah comes into that, that work that God had begun to do in the life of, and through the life of Josiah to, to support and to help as the prophet. Now, when we think of, and maybe I'm the only one that does this, but you can tell me if, if you don't think like this. My tendency when I go through Old Testament history is when there was a righteous judge or a righteous king, everything was great. And when there was an unrighteous judge or unrighteous king, everything was horrible. But that's not really the way things are any more than it is in our own day. When there were righteous kings, there were good things that happened and bad things that happened. And when there were unrighteous kings, there were good things that happened 
and bad things that happened. It was not all or nothing, all good or bad, again, just as it is in our own day. There are wonderful things that are happening, and there are terrible things that are happening. The problem is, is the terrible things are sensational. And so they tend to get the headlines, they tend to be talked about the most, and they tend to therefore make the biggest impact. In doing so, we neglect to appreciate and to understand that the small things, the insignificant things, are often what become the most significant things. A lost person comes to saving faith. A brother or sister in Christ repents from their sin, turns, realizes it, recognizes it, confesses it, stops doing it, puts their eyes back on Jesus. One of our children comes to realize their faith is their own, and they make it their own, and they begin growing spiritually and We're excited. We forgive. We sacrifice for another. We show mercy. We rest in God's providence. The list could go on. My point here is that we often think what's on the in the headlines makes the biggest impact. Instead, it's the saving and sanctifying work of the Spirit as Christ builds his kingdom that is way more significant than anything that happens in terms of viruses or legislation, or who's invading what country, or what bills get passed, those things will fade into the history books. But the work of God among his people in saving and transforming us in the image of Christ is eternal, and I would say, frankly, it matters more. God has a way of using insignificant people and what we think are insignificant things to do the most significant work of his, things that will last forever. And he does this to show his own glory, to put his own power on display. So even though we see dark days at times, and even though as we look at Jeremiah and we see difficult things, we can know that God is always at work. No one and no thing can thwart his plan. As God would state to Jeremiah later on in this chapter, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This was the message and the task that was given to Jeremiah. Now in verse 3, we see two other kings mentioned. We'll talk more about them as we move through the book. There were actually two other kings. There were five total Uh, that Jeremiah prophesied under, but the other two, their reign was so short that they don't even get credit here. They're not even mentioned, and so I won't take the time to go through that history as well. What I want to highlight instead is that what is foretold here does come to pass, that what Jeremiah was given to speak did come true. The people of Judah would be carried off into captivity in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. This was the second exile. Jerusalem would be ransacked. The temple would be burned. The discipline that Jeremiah warned of would come to pass. The people of the nation, as the nation overall, would not heed the warning. Now, that doesn't mean that there wasn't a remnant, that there weren't those who trusted God and relied on Him. But as we see throughout Scripture, that doesn't mean that they weren't impacted. Many of those would have been carried off into exile as well. They would have, they would have uh, uh, received the, the repercussions of the discipline for the whole people. But yet God would work in and through that as well. So there are times that things are happening to us that we can't make sense of. There will be things that happen in your life that you can't make sense of. You just have to continue to trust that God is at work, that he continues to work all things together. And this is a good place to remind ourselves as well of how God has worked through covenant. 
In the Old Testament, God worked through the nation of Israel. We see this part of this described in this book today. But in our time, in the New Covenant, God works through his people, the church. The people of God are not defined by a nation state. So we have to be careful not to make correlations. A lot of times we see promises and things in Scripture. We want to relate them all to ourselves. We are not Jeremiah, nor are we Israel. So there are specific things that don't apply to us, but there are general things, general truths that do apply to us. And it takes wisdom and discernment to understand which are those. But know that we who are by faith in Christ Jesus are his people. And his people are made up of everyone who is by faith in Christ Jesus from all the nations around the world. This has been his plan all along. And he even declares this in his calling of Jeremiah. Look in verse 5. He's called and appointed as a prophet to the nations. Again, God's plan all along. Go all the way back to Abraham and see that the promise is there to be a blessing to all nations. That God intends to make for himself a people from every nation and tribe and tongue through redemption. And so we'll see in Jeremiah that the new covenant is intended to reach all the way around the globe and gather people from all nations, tribes, and tongues to rescue them unto God. But first, what is laid, this groundwork that we see happening in the old covenant is that the people of God are in the nation of Israel. This is to whom the law had been given. This is from whom the prophets had come, and ultimately from whom the Messiah would come, who would fulfill all the promises and expectations that were given. And so now Jeremiah comes with this message. We see in his calling that his purpose is to be a mouthpiece for God. God knew him before he was born. God declares that he knows him, that he formed him. This word for formed is the same word used in Genesis to describe God's creating work. It's the idea of a potter who takes clay and makes various articles with different purposes. So God, who is outside space and time, he knows us eternally even before we're born. Note that God is the actor here in verse 5. He formed, he knew, he consecrated, he appointed Jeremiah. We're not the ones who are at work. We're not the ones who, 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 who take our own brand or our own gifts or our own marketing ability or our own whatever and bring them to people as, as, as a blessing. No, God is the actor he uses, often uses the most insignificant people in the most, what, what we think of as insignificant ways. We also see that this is referenced again both eternally and in the womb. That Jeremiah was not a parasite in his mother's womb waiting personhood when he was born. But God knew him when he was in the womb. Like every human, Jeremiah was created by God and in God's image with purpose and with dignity. He was formed and appointed for a time such as this season in the history of God's redemption. Now, I've said we're not Jeremiah. We have to discern what applies to him and what are the general truths that apply to us in our own day. But there are some general truths in this verse 5 that do apply to us. This is Sanctity of Life Month. I know much has already been said, but since I've been gone, I just want to say this again, that life matters. Life begins at conception. Life is given by God, and it matters and must be defended. The most vulnerable among us are the unborn. And as believers, we have to continue to stand against the genocide of abortion in our own day. 
But the unborn are not the only vulnerable among us. And so we have to have eyes to see and hearts willing to respond to the needs of others that God brings across our path. We need to, 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 to be alert. We get so busy, so distracted in life that we miss opportunities to see the needs around us. We're not Jeremiah. We're not called to the specific text of uh, a task of, of prophet in 6th century B.C., but there is purpose to each of our lives. I can't tell you specifically what God's purpose is for you any more than I can know specifically other than today what God's called me to do in this moment, right now, that's as far as I know. But I can tell you generally four things and we'll be done. One, our identity is found in and we were created for the glory of God. That is why we live. Everyone who is called by my name whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made, Isaiah 43, 7. We were made to glorify God. And if you have yet to put your faith in Christ, if you have yet to realize your need of a Savior, then know that you were made for more than finding purpose in your own ideas or your own thoughts or your own achievements or in the standards and the hopes that others have set before you. You were made by God in His image and for Him, and you can be reconciled by faith in Christ to Him. You were created for God's glory. Secondly, we who are alive in Christ were chosen by Him to live set apart. This is what we prayed this morning. Ephesians 1, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Why are you alive? You were created for the glory of God. Why are you alive? To live holy, set apart, and blameless before God. That's your purpose. I can tell you that with assurance because Scripture says so. And that speaks into more specifically what the purpose looks like. The third point, we have been born again to new life for specific things. Ephesians 2.10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Every breath that we've been given to breathe, every heartbeat entrusted to us matters and is to be stewarded in faith in Christ who saved us. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Why are you alive? The fruit of the Spirit. To to, to live unto God a life pleasing to Him. All the other particulars and details, you can trust Him with those things. We don't, we don't get to control our lives. We think we're in control sometimes, but we're not. But this we can know why we're here. Just as Jeremiah was formed, known, consecrated, and appointed as God's prophet to Judah, so you who believe in him were formed and are known, consecrated, and appointed to live unto him. This is why we're alive. It's not our performance. It's not our good works. We're not meriting God's favor. We are to live by faith, trusting in him turning when we sin, repenting and falling upon His mercy, but continually trusting Him as one who has been raised from the dead to live and walk in newness of life. That means that then no matter what comes, no disaster, 
no heartache, no virus, no legislation, no war, no diagnosis. Nothing in all this world can ever separate us from the love of God who formed us, who knows us, and who will one day safely bring us all home. Let's pray.